200,000 businesses, according to an O2 report launched during lockdown. It indicates that there is an appetite for entrepreneurship that hasn't been quashed by the latest crisis. Crisis, it spins out innovation and opportunity, and we're going to hear today from a couple who successfully rode that wave during the financial crisis of 2008, uh, when Noel Moran and co-founder then Valerie Willis, at uh, now Moran, launched PFS. Um, welcome, Noel and Valerie, to the show. Well, thank you for Hi, having Patricia. us. Thanks for having us. Well, I think this is definitely one of those uh, success stories which will inspire a lot of listeners, uh, particularly those people who are, are considering that should I or shouldn't I um, in the middle of a of a of a recession. And um, so, we really want to hear all about uh, prepaid financial services, which you guys launched back in two thousand and eight, which you know, wasn't the best time to be launching a business. Um, can you tell us a bit about the company and what it does? Uh, Noel, let's start with you. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I guess it was a difficult time and a strange time to start up a business. It kind of happened by default because we were in the middle of a recession. Um, I was working with a company who actually went into administration around that time. Um, and that's when I started to look at what I was doing and maybe other opportunities I had. Uh, I was working in the card space and in the payment space around that time with another prepaid provider uh, in London. Um, but I came up with a slightly different idea. The company I was working with, I guess, were targeting very large corporates, very large clients, and they were looking for large sales and large number of cards. Whereas during working there, I noticed that there was a lot of very small companies coming to us and medium-sized companies and SMEs mm-hmm. looking for five cards here, 10 cards there, 20 cards, you know, um, quick and easy solutions that they could use to replace cash effectively. Uh, so what we do is, we're first of all, we're a regulated entity. We provide alternative solutions, I guess, to, um, to banks. We provide banking uh, solutions. We provide prepaid cards, debit cards, current accounts, payment services, a whole host of things around payments. Um, but when we started out, I, I started focusing on the small to medium sized market. And eventually a lot of small orders, I guess, just accumulated to a lot of cards and it allowed us to get a lot of cards and a lot of accounts out very quickly. And that's how we started. And the business has grown, I guess, substantially from there over the last 10, 11 years. Um, and Valerie, you weren't in prepaid cards at the time. Um, you were, but you were in the financial services sector at the same time. Um, how, you know, how was it for you in terms of that idea? You know, when Noel uh, came to you with it, and you know, how easy was it for you to kind of get your head around, you know, what what he was hoping to do? So you're right. Yes, I wasn't in the prepaid sector at that time. I was working in financial services, but that was more related to insurance. So when Noel came to me with the idea and explained to me what the business um, ideology was about and how he intended to roll out the idea and the concept into the market, it made sense at the time. And it was a bit of a risk because I was coming on board to a company that wasn't going to pay me. There was no remuneration and we really had no very little capital at that time. So it was taking a huge leap from where I was into believing something that would work. 
So I came on board as an implementation manager because at that time, um, there were a number of third parties that we needed in order to build the business. And we were looking at about 23 third parties. So someone had to collate all that and basically project manage that. And that was my initial role. Yeah. And that initial role meant taking up the taking off the business from the operational side to the HR side and the day-to-day -day running of the full operation. And that's what I did for PFS um, over the years until... Uh, the last day I left PFS. I mean, you guys were together at the time, um, but it must have still been a hugely scary decision. Um, and obviously your experience of uh, risk in the insurance industry probably would have stood you in good stead. But it sounds like you were also taken on stretching and into a lot of roles that you had no experience with. Were there times that you thought, God, you know, I've made a mistake, I should have stayed. Do you know, how many times did that come? Like any startup, I suppose, it happens, you know, almost daily at the, <laughs> at the beginning. And um, was that something that, that were feelings that you guys had at the time? Well, personally, myself, yeah, there were feelings of saying, okay, fine, now that we've gone into this business venture, you know, we can't fail with it. We mm -hmm. have to give it our utmost. And even if we do fail, at least let's say we failed when we've done our utmost best. Yes, as an entrepreneur, you are going to have moments where you basically sit down and think to yourself, you know, did I make the right judgment? Is this the right path for me? But then you have to persevere uh, along the way and then believe in yourself. It's very important to believe in yourself because if you can't believe in yourself, then how do you make the next person believe in you yeah. and in what you're selling? So I think both of us, our personalities are very good in that. Instead of getting stressed over it, what we decided to do was, look, this is what we have today. How do we make the most out of what we have? And what is the strategic plan that we are going to basically roll out in order to grow this business? So to not say there weren't any hiccups, yes, there were many hiccups along the way, especially when you're starting up, when you have no capital, you know, you have very little money, you're stretched yourself because you're working long hours, you know, you're trying to become 20 people for a job that <laughs> one or two yes. or three people can do. Yeah. So uh, yes, that is a lot of um, ask for anyone. But at the same time, when it starts shaping up and then you can see that, you know, I'm onto something, this is where you have to to give your utmost best. Yeah, we do hear a lot um, from different guests on the show about they talk about the plate spinning and all the plates that you need to spin. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but it is that self that is it is almost that belligerent self-belief, isn't it, Noel? Um, where, you know, you have to be the one person that believes in the idea and to power through no matter who is telling you that it won't work or what's, you know, what's happening. And I know those early years, you guys have talked about the kitchen table uh, period of your of the business at the early stage and, you know, how challenging that was. Can you tell us a bit about those those early, early years and what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced at that time? Yeah, I mean, listen, like any business starting out, it was obviously difficult, you know, you, you face the same challenges that many other businesses face. So, you know, first of all, can you keep it going and how can you keep the business going? You need to start getting some revenue in, you know, can you sell your product? Will someone buy the product? Is there a demand for it? So, you know, the same things kind of um, are common across a lot of startups. Um, now, it was a struggle to sell ours at the start. It certainly wasn't easy. We, we struggled and we were, we were close to out of business on several occasions, but... 
you know, we got a lucky break and we got a client on board and the first client is always the important client. So, you know, if one client wants your product, well, you kind of think if there's one out there, there must be Mm -hmm. another one or maybe there's two or three. So it did start to snowball like that. That's actually how it happened. Um, And probably one of the other significant parts was we eventually got one local authority on board for uh, to work on a pilot project with us as well. Uh, back in 2007, Brent Council, that's 13 years ago. And now mm-hmm. we service about 120, 130 local authorities in the UK. And we work with multiple other governments. So, you know, it's always small steps at the beginning. Uh, you don't know what's going to come of it. You don't know where it's going to end up 10 or 12 years further down the line. So it is a challenge just to keep it going. But the priority is to to keep it going and make sure you can stay in business and try and try and keep all the plates spinning and balance the books and just keep it alive until you actually do get a break someday, you know? I think what's fascinating about what you guys do is that I am sure that I have probably used your product. Do you know what I mean? Like I've probably used it through maybe my credit card or, you know, or, you know, when I've bought Sky and they've sent me a prepaid card as a as a cashback thing yep. or whatever. So, so many of us will have, as consumers, will have probably engaged with with your business, but we don't know it. And I think that's what's so interesting about business is that there's some huge, really fascinating organizations in the world and, you know, people just don't know, don't know them. Um, and you guys now are, you know, you've had profits of more than 86 million last year and you're you're operating in 25 countries. Um, but you didn't always bootstrap the business. You did seek investment um, at um, at, a, at a stage. And I'd love to hear about that investment journey and what you've learned from that experience, because there'll be many um, entrepreneurs who will be considering the same options, you know, whether they finance through debt or through equity or, um, you know, or try and bootstrap, self-fund it, um, which is a very rare yep. occasion. Now. So tell us about your, how did you guys fund the business and, you know, what were the high and lows of that point. Yeah, just one correction on that. The 86 million is the turnover, not the profit, unfortunately, oh. Patricia. I wish it <laughs> okay. was, but it wasn't all profit. We had a few costs. <laughs> uh, so, we, yeah, we did 86 million of turnover. I think that okay. were the figures for 2018, actually 2019. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we are live and operating in 25 countries and we did bootstrap it from day one. I mean, that that is the reality of it. Um, as I said, I was working with another company in London and that wasn't going too well. So we have been trying to bootstrap that company as well for the previous four or five, six months. And unfortunately, then when the crash came in 2007, mm-hmm. uh, 2008, that was the end of that one. So I hadn't got a whole ton of money uh, behind me when I set this one up, but it was an opportunity to do something. So I was better off doing something rather than nothing, you know. Um, but we had no money. Whatever money we did have, we put into the business. But we're talking small money here, you know, less than 100 grand to keep it going over the initial the initial 12 months. Mm-hmm. We tried to get investment. Uh, we definitely spoke to investors. We tried to get investors in. But I mean, it was impossible in London at the time because the investors were doing the exact opposite. Once the crash came, yeah. they were pulling out of everything. And although they had money and there was money around, they certainly weren't <laughs> investing it until they'd seen how the... The mm-hmm. landscape panned out, so there, there literally was no money. The money dried up overnight, um. So we had we just had to keep going, and as I said, the turning point was really when we got a client. That was our first revenue. So 
that's the first time where you actually have a, a client. You can bill a client, you can invoice them. He paid up front. So, mm-hmm. you know, it might have been only 25, 30 grand at the time, but that 30 yeah. grand meant we could survive for another three to four months, maybe. Yeah. Um, and that meant we had three to four months to look for another client and a second client or a third client. Um, and we just kept going like that. And we went out looking for money even two or three years later to expand the business when we had kind of proved now that there's a demand for the product and a demand for the service. But we still couldn't get investors on board. Mm-hmm. They just weren't they weren't convinced. You know, the space we work in as well was new at the time. You know, we're, we're a regulated entity. We work under an e-money license. There was maybe 20 or 30 of us in London at the time, mo- at most, actually, probably less. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas now there's 200, you know. Yeah. Um, so it was a new product. It was hard to get investors on board. It was hard to get them to buy into the concept. Um, so it was difficult. So we just had to keep going until we managed to get the revenues up and managed yeah. to, to get more clients on board. And lucky enough, we did and we kept going. It's re- it's that raising from your customers, isn't it? You know, it's the, the sort of the litmus test for a truly sustainable business if you can raise it from your from your from your clients. Um, yeah. And yet, eight years later, you have sold it for for three hundred twenty seven million euros. So, um, you know, uh, I'm sure there's a few investors that are kicking their boots uh, now. But so let's talk about the sale then. So you guys, you know, you built the business gradually. Um, and um, then you've actually then um, sold the business. So tell us a bit about that and that process, because even for seasoned entrepreneurs as yourself, that must have been an incredible um, experience. So, yes, that was a, a very intense process. So when we started off the business, at some point, we always knew that we were going to sell the company prepaid financial services at some point. But what we wanted to do was build a business that you could go out to investors and venture capitalists and then say, you know, this is what we want to sell and this is the, this is what we've built over the years, a profit-making business. However, that journey was a very difficult journey because obviously there were a number of third parties that we had to deal with before we could go on a roadmap, basically, on a roadshow, basically, to um, to unlist a number of companies that were interested in buying prepaid financial services. It also meant a lot of hard work from ourselves and all the directors and the shareholders that were involved in PFS in trying to sell the business. It wasn't an easy decision because Mm -hmm. there were so many other hiccups that we encountered when we were trying to go through this process. It was also a decision that we had to sit down and then decide who was the right partner. It wasn't just about going to sell the business to anyone. it was making sure that the pers- the company that we basically sold the business to, we had a lot of synergies and they were going to complement and take PFS to the next level. So it, there were a lot of things that were a burning factor to ourselves as the owners of the business that were of essence, basically. And one of them bas- that would I will mention on this particular podcast is that we were looking for a partner that would allow us to venture into markets and that we were not present in. And for instance, the new partnership that we got with EML, they're live in Australia and they're live in the US and they have licenses there and we have licenses in Europe and they don't have licenses in Europe. So that made a good partnership and a good yeah. synergy. 
So it was a, a long process, a very long-winded process. And towards the end, you know, it finally closed, but it wasn't an easy journey at the, at the same point. Yeah, and just something that you touched on there about finding the right partner, because I know that we talk to different guests on the show and they talk about having to kiss a lot of frogs when it comes to <laughs> investors, um, you know, and private equity firms. I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure he's probably kissed a few along the way yourselves. Um, but from reading about both of you, I know that having an inclusive building and inclusive business has been a cornerstone for what um, you both have, have built there. Um, I think uh, almost half of your uh, business are from various different um, ethnic backgrounds. And um, was that a factor? Was that something that was important? I mean, we're in the middle of Black History Month. Um, you know, Valerie, you're um, celebrated as the first uh, black woman on the Sunday Times Rich List. Um, having that inclusivity and allowing, you know, all cultures to thrive, did that feature in your decisions on who you would partner with to see the business grow? Not really, I'll be honest with you. That wasn't the consensus of selling the business because what we said to ourselves, that what whoever came on board, we wanted to make sure that they adopt our policies mm-hmm. and um, our our procedures that we had within the business, especially when it came to the HR aspect. You know, that was really important that we have we had an open door policy and an open minded policy, you know, without prejudice. You know, that was our main focus in our recruitment process. But when it came to selling the business, that wasn't really a part. And I can say um as a selling point or a point that where we could say, you know, this was of essence. What was of essence was to get a business that would embrace the company's culture and the company's policies mm-hmm. and that would then incorporate their policies. And it's I have to say with EML, you know, they have a very strong people, what they call people um, policy, and it has only enhanced and turned out to be very very beneficial for our staff. And all it has done in terms of what I believed in over the years, because I basically um, believed in a policy that was diverse and inclusive. And over the years, one of the HR policies that we made sure within the business we promoted was a place of workplace that was fair, you know, treated fairly. And, you know, if you had the right skills, you'd be treated fairly, regardless of your creed, ethnic origin. We know we hired people on merit and that was the focus of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd still say that will be EML's focus going forward because yeah. they've done very well to promote that since then. If you're enjoying the podcast, simply hit the like and subscribe button on your favourite podcast platform. If you have the time, leave us a review. You can do that really easily by going to ratemypodcast.com forward slash fast forward. Yeah, and you have stayed involved in the business a little bit just to keep an eye on that. What capacity have you guys stayed involved, Noel? Yeah, well, I'm still involved, so I'm still CEO, still running the business, and that's the case up until... um at least next March anyway, mm-hmm. um, we'll re- review things next year and see where we are about the commitment. Once the EML took over, the deal concluded on 31st of March and I gave a commitment to stay for at least a year and we'd review things then next year and see where we are. So I'm still involved, as involved as ever, continuing to run the business and trying to expand and develop um, into new areas for EML. 
Yeah. And have you guys seen any changes over lockdown? I would imagine your product might find a whole new ream of uh, user cases um, in terms of how people might use prepaid, prepaid cards, <laughs> uh, prepaid cards over the over the um, pandemic. Yeah, sorry about that phone there. That's okay. um, yeah, we have. Listen, we've seen pros and cons, I guess, to be honest, Patricia. So, you know, unfortunately, some of our clients were obviously impacted more significantly than others um, adversely. Um, and it's difficult for everyone to survive. This is a, a really strange climate, obviously, for certain mm -hmm. sectors. So the travel industry in particular, we would have had some amount, some clients in the travel industry, uh, FX travel and online travel and corporate, corporate travel and stuff like that. So that has obviously taken a serious hit. Yeah. Um, travel is probably the most affected. But on the other side, we've seen um, new opportunities arise. So, for example... If we look at Jersey government as a good example, the government in Jersey did a stimulus payment for everyone on the island of Jersey, 110,000 individuals. Mm -hmm. um, and they actually distributed that payment on a prepaid card. Um, so it was something we were able to turn around pretty quickly from nearly from starting to talk to them and getting it live. I think it was up and running in about six or eight weeks. Wow. So that was, that was something that obviously wouldn't have happened unless we had this. So... You know, there's there's pros and cons and there's swings and roundabouts and there's there's sad stories and there's some positive ones coming out of it. And it must be nice to see some that your product's been used almost like tech for good and, and that you can see the how quickly, you know, had your product not existed, how difficult something like that might have been for the government to say, yes, we're going to do it. But then actually that money hitting people's, you know, hitting people's pockets when they need it, they need it most. Yeah, exactly. It's great to be able to see it. You know, it's a very good solution to distribute uh, to distribute effectively cash very, very quickly. So, you know, we can get something like that up and running very, very quickly. We can distribute it in mass numbers um, and we can get it out there very quickly. So it's a very safe and efficient alternative to distributing cash. You can imagine the logistics <laughs> that would have been around trying to get, you yeah. know, cash around the island, let alone the security side of things. But oh, God, it'd be nightmare. The logistics, yeah. <laughs> I and mean, then also the sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say. I mean, the biggest uh, benefit for Jersey then was, you know, okay, distributing cash could have been an option, but then they want to make sure that that cash goes back into the local economy. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about getting the product out there. You know, the technology we have can make sure that every cent of that that's on the card is spent in Jersey with Jersey merchants and nowhere else. Um, so there's other benefits that come with it. Wow, I mean that's. That's incredible that you can actually help facilitate that um, and make sure that that, um, that the island economy is sustained. Um, now, I am very interested in your uh, backstories and I've read quite a bit about um, how you guys have come together. Um, Valerie, um, let's start with you. Now, you're originally from Zimbabwe and today is Eat a Loveliest Day and we're celebrating uh, women in technology and STEM. Um, so you are a great uh, advocate for, for both of these. Um, but I really wanted to touch on when you were growing up because I've read quite a few stories that your original ambitions were to be a nurse, which is STEM, uh, but you were directed down a different route by your dad. And I wondered if you might just tell us a little bit about the backstory. And uh, what he would say now, um, now that he sees what you've achieved. Um, 
yes, that is very cor- correct. Uh, initially, I didn't want to, I, I wanted to be a nurse and I had my heart set on it so much that when I was growing up, um, the primary school I used to go to, there was a hospital near the that school and I used to take a shortcut through the hospital because I loved working, going through the hospital. That was the ambition. However, when I finished high school and I was ready now to go and study to become a nurse, my dad was really opposed to that. Um, There were a number of reasons at that time why he was opposed to it. The medical fraternity in Zimbabwe wasn't that great. It also didn't pay that very well. So he just discouraged me completely and he, refa- and he refused to pay the tuition yeah. for it. So therefore, I couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> end so, of story. <laughs> end of story. <laughs> so, but then my mom is the one who then bought me a computer science book for COBOL programming. And then mm-hmm. she said to me, would you consider studying computer science? She says, you're, you're quite bright. So maybe this is something you can do. And then I started to look into it. And then, yes, I went to study on to become a computer programmer, a systems analyst. But really, that was my mom. And my mom growing up was a huge advocate for, you know, being independent and educated. Mm-hmm. Um, when we were growing up, it was a well-known fact that, you know, if you were to um, get married at 20 or 25. My mom wasn't happy with that. Our parents would have never been happy about that. It was more about, you know, grow up, be independent and get successful and then get married and have a career first and find yourself. Then mm-hmm. you get married. And that's how they promoted it. Um, so my mom really was the stepping stone into the, I can say, the world of science for me, really. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty um, forward-thinking parental model. Um, mm-hmm. Noel, you and I are from Ireland, so you know it's almost like the it's the total opposite. It's like get married, get married, yeah. have children, don't have a career, especially for women. True. Um, but your your own um, career journey was actually also, I think, it's where we're sort of like what this stood out to me was about the power of role models. Um, so obviously your mum and your dad, Valerie, were yours. But um, no, for you, it was um, a school's career advisor um, that actually had suggested uh, sort of fintech and the financial services to you. Can you tell us a bit about that and how you ended up then exploring that as your career? Yeah, that's right. So when I actually finished up in school, when I finished up here, I went to St. Pat's in Navin. When I finished up here, I went to work with my father, actually. We had previously worked there during all the summers and any time we'd have off during school holidays, we'd always be working. So um, I had no plans to go to college. I had no interest in going to college, to be honest. So I immediately uh, went to work and that was in the furniture industry. Um, and I worked there for, I think it was a year or close enough to a year after leaving school. And then one day I got a phone call from Ray Mooney, who was the career guidance teacher in St. Pat's at the time. And he said, listen, there's a couple of jobs going in permanent TSB in Stevens Green. There was the head office at the time. Um, would you be interested in going for an interview? Um, and I definitely had always fancied financial services. I was pretty good with figures and numbers and stuff like that. So I went for the interview and lucky enough, managed to get it. Um, And that's where I started out, I guess, in the financial services sector and worked with various banks then in Ireland and went to the UK to to work with probably almost all the banks in the UK. And then ended up obviously moving into the prepaid and card space as well. So 
it's funny how things work out. You should never close a door on anything, you know. No. And do you know what? It's really lovely to hear how, you know, because you'd left school a year. So most teachers would yeah. not be reaching out to you. They wouldn't give two hits what you were doing. Um, so you must have really left an impact on him or something that must have made him think of you, um, you know, when those those job opportunities came up. Yeah, I think there was also a connection there as well um, with himself and Irish Permanent. There was someone else there. So they were on a bit of a recruitment drive anyway mm-hmm. at the time. But yeah, listen, you're right. He didn't have to reach out um, after a year. So it was certainly nice to get the call. And, and looking back on it now, I guess, you know, I probably wouldn't have ended up where we are now had I not started out in the financial sector back then. Yeah. All those years ago. You know, it's funny how things work out. You, you just never know, you know. No, you don't. And I think you're absolutely right. Is that open mindedness and, you know, being ready to seize the opportunity like you both did back in 2008 to have a go at trailblazing your own uh, industry from the signs of it. Um, So incredible success for both of you. And um, I have no doubt there will be more incredible uh, things happening um, with you. And I wondered, um, would you... Um, you know, what are the plans for the future now? Um, obviously, Noel, you've still got a bit of a focus on on the business until next March. But what what's next for um, for for you guys? Um, I'll speak for myself. Um, really, I left PFS at the end of um, August. So we have another business in the acquiring space, which is called Eco Merchant Solutions. And we're really focusing on that business to try and build it like what we did with PFS. The idea and the structure and the methodology we used with PFS is going to be exactly the same thing. Um, and it's growing nicely. The, build, the, the business was built in 2000 and was founded in 2014. So we're still a very young business at the moment. So we hope that someday we'll be having another conversation when we have also sold that particular business. Um, uh, in the next couple of years. So that's the idea and the focus at the moment because that business currently employs around about 70 staff members in Navin. So it is a growing business that we would be hoping that one day we can achieve the same um, efforts that we achieved with PFS. Lovely. And Noel, um, uh, in it as a husband and wife team again, I mean, I'm sure it's been a, an interesting um, eight, 12 years um, working together. Is that still on the horizon to the fantastic duo to keep going? Yeah, listen, yeah. absolutely. We get on well together. We work well together. <laughs> so um, it, it's worked out well for 12 or 13 years and she hasn't left me yet. So <laughs> hopefully we'll, hopefully it will continue to be like that. We have, listen, we have a lot of other projects going on, I yeah. guess, too, that Valerie didn't cover. Um, we're developing some property projects here in uh, in Navan as well too. We're looking to build a hotel. We're looking to build a, a big office block as well too in Trim. Um, and we've invested into a couple of other companies as well, smaller companies as well that maybe we can get involved in next year or the coming years too. So listen, we like to be kept busy, I guess, you know, when you've worked, you know, one of the things about having your own company is that you're constantly working, to be honest. There's very little downtime. So when you do sell a business and you've put so much into it and you've worked so many hours every day, it's hard to go from working so many hours to doing nothing. So mm-hmm. you have to keep yourself busy and you need to keep the mind occupied. So there's a lot going on. 
Yeah. And you haven't even touched on the philanthropy that you, you're both involved in, um, as I know that you do both invest in um, initiatives to help improve the lives of others. Um, I don't know whether you want to share a little bit about that. Um, yes, yeah. we will share a little bit about that. Um, we've been involved in a number. I've been involved, especially one particular one that's really close to my uh, close to home or that hits home really is a project with uh, the company. I won't mention the company because I don't have their permission, but it's to really help um, children in Zimbabwe that are really less privileged and that are suffering from, you know, HIV and their parents really can't afford to look after them or some of them, their parents have died. Um, so I've been involved in with, with them so far. And then back home here, we are involved with a number of football clubs, a lot of... Um, um, organizations where we basically invest in the local theater uh, that are around us, like the solstice, where basically to help young people, young entrepreneurs in school projects. So there's a lot. The list is a long, uh, a long list, basically. And maybe Noel can add to it if he wants. But we are involved a lot with our community because we believe basically, you know, I think, you know, you have to give back to society because it then gives back to you. And that feeling of giving is such mm -hmm. a rewarding feeling that no one can ever give you. So sometimes, you know, when when we do that, you know, the rewards that we get from just giving, nobody could understand that feeling in itself. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we've heard a lot about the choices and decisions that you have both made when you were young and what influence that's had on your future. Um, Noel, what um, advice could you give to young people who are looking at their career options now, especially in the current climate um, where things are just they're just changing so rapidly? What would be your um, your advice from the work that you're doing with young people? Yeah, I mean, we do. We are involved with some of the schools here as well, too. And we've got involved in some projects with some of the schools locally. So it's great to be able to help out in those. But, you know, it is a challenging environment. All right. To be honest, I'm not sure I'd like to be back there uh, <laughs> myself at the moment. I'm not sure if it's easier now or more difficult than it was 20, 25 years ago. But I think the one thing I would say to anyone is, you know, if you have an idea or there is um an entrepreneurial side to you and you have an idea for a product or some sort of business that you'd like to set up you know at least give it a go I think I mm -hmm. think as Valerie said at the start if you give it a go the worst thing that can happen is you fail you know um and that's all that can happen and failing mm -hmm. is in the is in the end of the world yeah. either you know um and you can learn a lot from failing as well too and there's a lot to be taken out of it so definitely give it a go for sure if your product is good enough or or there is a market for it, you know, there will always be uh, people out there who will help you and who will invest in you. You will get investors and you will get people to help you. Um, you know, there's some great, um, going back to myself, I suppose, the career guidance teacher who gave me the phone call many years ago, you know, if I hadn't got the phone call, I probably wouldn't be here now. So there's always someone that will potentially reach out and help you. Um, and as I said, if you do have a product, I think there's always someone, you'll get the money to make it work if the product is good enough. Yeah, brilliant advice to um, wrap the podcast on. Um, I've been thoroughly fascinated with your story of, of success and the highs and lows that have come with it. And um, I hope that sharing that story will help give someone to other entrepreneurs who uh, are on that same path a better night's sleep. Thank you to both of you. 
Thanks for having us, Patricia. Thank you. Thank you. Fast Forward is a weekly interview podcast brought to you by Tech Manchester, an incubator for digital and creative startups in the Northwest. I'm your host, Patricia Keating. The podcast is produced by Sarah Belli, audio editing by Jamie Gownlock, and music by Parma Violets. If you have any questions, feel free to drop us a line at info at techmanchester.co.uk or follow us on any of our social channels, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn, all under Tech Manchester. <laughs>